Hello and welcome to another positive podcast. In today's episode, The Roots of Addiction, I have a distinct privilege to interview an incredible person, Ellie Nash. Ellie is a popular podcast host of the In Search for More podcast. And we discuss the roots of addiction and we try to shed some light and understanding to the topic of addiction and recovery. Ellie has like this deep understanding of these topics in a way that most people do not. It's almost as if he can see both sides of the topic, meaning he has a deep understanding of the addict and of the co-addict. He has this way about him that's just, it's very easy to talk to him. He makes you feel comfortable. And it's like almost as if you're sitting and having a conversation with a friend. Ellie helps many people who are looking to get help. And he does it in a way that makes those struggling feel uplifted. I thought it would be an interesting listen for those of you who may not understand the world of recovery. I think it's important that our community learn to drop the stigma and begin to educate ourselves because when we are aware that there is a solution to our problems, we can start the process of healing. The fact is that addiction doesn't discriminate. And there are many people in our community and our families who struggle with addiction. The more open and aware we are, the more likely we are able to help ourselves, our children, our families, and our community. My hope is that by having these hard conversations on topics that are uncomfortable, is that perhaps even one person who's listening will be uplifted and will be able to find a path forward in their journey of life. In addition, if you'd like to hear more information on positive life coaching that I offer, or you would like to sign up for a free consultation, you can reach me through my website at apositivecoach.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on this podcast as well as what came up for you as you were listening. Let's keep this conversation going. You can feel free to email me with any questions or comments. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with a friend or a family member and leave a comment and a rating. This helps others find my podcast easier. Thanks again for listening. Sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Ellie, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm going to give a brief introduction. Ellie Nash is a popular podcast host of the In Search for More podcast, which I truly enjoy listening to. As well, he is a community activist and dare I say a community leader who is blazing the path and opening the world to the power of sharing, communicating, and specifically in the topics of addiction and sexual abuse. And firstly, I want to commend you on your depth. I haven't met you. This is my first time actually meeting you in person, well, online, but I'm very amazed by your depth of knowledge, your clear comprehension of issues and such a wide range of them, like from fundraising to addiction to mental health and, you know, new possible Hasidic modalities, um, which I've all heard of. And people can reach out and see, hear all these podcasts, which I will link um, on my podcast as well. But the manner in which you speak, it hints at either a deep education in the school of hard knocks, or perhaps, you know, you've had some formal coaching or clinical training, which I'm curious to hear more about as well, but you're an ex, you're an excellent interviewer. And what I'm hoping to, what I'm hoping to accomplish today is to turn the tables on you and ask you some questions, even if many of these topics are things that have been discussed by you on your podcast, um, in various different settings and some more public, you know, some less so, but none more than your Ted talk which to date has 3.8 million views on the topic of porn addiction. 
And I encourage any of my listeners to take a few minutes and actually watch it. It was it was very informative and really gave me a deep insight um, on top on a topic that I didn't know much about. So I want to touch on a few topics today, uh, addiction, abuse. But before we kind of get into this discussion of addiction, you know, I myself was truly, I was clueless until about a year ago when a close family member of mine got involved or kind of it became, a, we became aware of an alcohol substance abuse. And while it has changed my life and for a period of time, it was the most disruptive thing to my life and family. I'm finding that now a year later, I'm a much better person from this experience as is, I like to call endearingly so, my addict. I hope that's okay to use that term. <laughs> but my question is, for me, this learning or this training happened on the job. But my hope here today in this podcast is to kind of give some basic insight into what addiction is for you know those people that have not been touched or do not know much about it. And if they should encounter it in themselves or in a loved one, it won't be so shocking because I think by talking about these topics, by bringing awareness, we're able to really kind of have a better understanding so that when it hits us, we're not like knocked over completely, if that makes sense. So if you don't mind to kind of give us, tell us a definition of addiction in your own words for those listeners who aren't familiar firsthand with addiction. My definition of addiction is either something right, like a drug or a behavior that someone uses to numb, escape, or distract from their life, repeats in that behavior, repeatedly engages in that behavior, it takes whatever that substance is, uh, despite the fact that there are negative consequences. And the degree of addiction is just the, uh, the degree that someone allows those negative consequences to persist before they get honest. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I think with that definition, you have everyone is an addict. Definitely, right? that's what it sounds like, right? <laughs> right, but some people need to, get 10, need to gain 10 pounds to feel like they're out of sorts and have to shift something and other people need to have a, you know, quadruple bypass um, heart surgery before they say, hey, maybe I'm not taking care of myself. Right. So like that's what I'm hearing you talk about is rock bottom. What their rock bottom is that? Was that what you're saying? Kind of. Yeah. But some people don't even have a rock bottom. That's the, and they're not what we would call addicts, but they engage in a behavior that's destructive. They just may turn off of that behavior a little bit sooner. Mm hmm. You know, your story of addiction is no secret. You know, at least 3.8 million people know about it. But <laughs> I want to go, <laughs> parts of it, but I want to go to a bit earlier so that we can kind of set this up. You know, you grew up in Crown Heights, I assume. I think so. I think you mentioned mm -hmm. that. And yep. tell us about that time, how growing up there. Tell us a little bit of what kind of, what kind of child were you? And I'm asking this not because I'm just curious. I want to see if there are some tools and tricks that, given your experience, can be kind of like a guide for parents today, how to guide right. children not or parents not to end up in the same situation that you did. And what if anything, you know now, you could have done differently or could have been done by somebody else differently? Right. I think that, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I was a good kid, right? Well-behaved and did well in school and good student. And um, I think that most of the issues that I had were kind of internalized and it became the discomforts that I had made me lean towards, let me step out of the way instead of, okay, let me make some more noise. Mm -hmm. I see it, for example, with my own children. Um, 
where my two oldest, the my son, when he's agitated, it explodes. Right. And my daughter retreats, retreats a little bit. Yeah. And I see that how that second reaction can kind of be encouraged by parents, especially if there's overwhelm. I was one of nine children. Right. And label the one who's retreating as good and well-behaved. And I wish the first one was more like the second one. Right. So I would say I, I fit more into that category of, okay, if it was, if I, if I felt I was being an inconvenience, I disappeared. Hmm. So I, I don't know that there was very obvious things going on, but there definitely were stuff that spiked. So for example, the, the, I was mild mannered, but as long as I can remember, I had a really bad temper, which meant that it was really bad. It just came as a surprise to people. So it was cool, 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 cool until it exploded. And even as a child, six, seven, eight years old. And uh, I remember my dad sitting me down often to talk to me about my temper, but I don't know that I ever felt that the the question was asked about like why it's there, what's really going on. I know as a parent, that's something that I try to do the more carefully. Instead of assuming that this is a behavior that I need to adjust, just automatically assume there's something going on with my child if they're acting in a different way. And right. I wonder also, you know, from the age of um, eight to 10, I was sexually abused by a family friend. And, you know, that also kind of fit the pattern. I was out of the way. I found someone to, to, to go to that I got a certain level of love and attention. There was a price to pay, but I wasn't cognizant at eight or nine or 10, what that price was, but I engaged. I went back. It was a, at the time the deal was worth it. Right. And, you know, in hindsight, could there have been, I'm sure there were certain signs that there was something amiss. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I got into a fight uh, with a kid in school and he was a Balchuva. Remember, he had just become from, came to the school in Crown Heights. And his reaction was, okay, I'm going back to public school. <laughs> like, I, I felt it was a little manipulative, but neither yeah. here nor there. And the school felt they had to take it seriously, which they did, but I think they took it up a level because of that. And one of the things they asked was that I go to therapy, which actually was a good idea. But you know, looking back at it, I was... I think 13 years old. Yeah, I was definitely after apartment. So I was 13 years old and going, let's say six months every week to a therapist and the therapist never once asked uh, any question related to abuse. I know we didn't know as much back then. I thought we did. I mean, there were stories going around back then. I mean, 23 years ago. Uh, I recall, you know, I grew up in Morristown. There were some stories and people spoke about it and you know, but I guess not as much as today. I don't think it's right. at the level that we are at today where that would be the first, not the first, but that would be a real question that we would ask in therapy session. I'm curious, what prompted your teachers to, um, you know, it's a fight. Boys do get into arguments. I'm curious what, what got them to get you into therapy. That's, that's I interesting. I think what it was is, you know, what have happened on the details. I was sitting down and the boy pulled the chair out from under me and I fell. Yeah. And when they were asking me to relay the story, I said that I remember the chair being pulled out from under me. And then I remember being pulled off from on top of him, but I don't remember what happened be like in between. In that between that. I think, yeah. And I think that um, scared someone, I guess. Okay. That's interesting. Say, yeah. That blacking out or whatever happened over there. 
Maybe. So what I'm hearing you say is, is that that's uh, the therapist not asking you that question was, was a mistake. I wonder about was, that. You wonder yeah, about I, that. I remember some of the conversations. I remember her talking about, you know, different things in my home and my parents and school and stuff like that. But I, I don't know if that question was never there. And, you know, a big part of the reason I talk and share and speak openly is because I know the danger of secrets. And yeah. I kept this secret for myself from when I was when it happened until I was 23 years old, which is a long time for a secret, but it's short, I think, for most male sexual abuse survivors, for sure. I saw yeah. a study that most male sexual abuse survivors don't first talk about until their 40s. So, but that 15-year period of keeping that secret, although it felt very powerful, like the, the energy to keep it closed inside me, I told the first person who asked. I didn't lie to him. And that was another so therapist in my 20s. So, so the I first wonder, person that asked you was the person that I told. Yeah. Like you said, you know, maybe it's because it's more common now. Uh, the therapist insisted that it wasn't the reason he asked me. He just felt a connection between what I was experiencing and sexual abuse victims. And within 15 minutes of meeting him, he asked me, were you sexually abused? And I've often thought, you know, what would have happened? How, how might my life have been different if at, 13 years old, when I walked into therapy, that question was asked. Yeah. I'm fairly certain I would have said yes. I just, I think I would have said the truth. So what I'm hearing you say is the power of asking the question, just simply talking to our children and, and really like saying, what's going on? I'm noticing this and this. Tell me, there's, is there more going on? What else is going on? Because a lot of times, you know, like that's not an open-ended question. You know, that's a very specific question. When you ask somebody, are you being sexually abused? Or, you know, they'll be like, no, because their understanding of that perhaps maybe, you know, it really depends on the question too, right? I mean, the power of what they're asking. Yeah, I don't think it's it's not in a vacuum, right? You're you're not just walking over to someone and asking that one right. question and then walking it's, away. Exactly. You're trying to pay, okay, there's something going on. When when we're seeing something, what's our assumption of that behavior? So I'm I'm just thinking, you know, maybe I've seen this from my wife and the way she was with my kids, but um, last night as it happens, my, my son woke up and for three hours, he didn't stop asking me for different things. He's three years old and <laughs> it's, it's unlike him. I haven't seen him do this in at least, I don't know, several months for sure. But my, when I was thinking about it this morning, I said, you know, maybe I have to spend some alone time with him. Like it was something about the behavior that didn't seem right. You know, the mm -hmm. instinct in the moment is okay. Like, how do I stop? How do I stop this? How do I get him just to go to sleep and go to sleep me crazy asking for one thing? I make whatever I want the food. I make it for him. No, I don't want to eat that. I want a toy, you know, and I right. keep trying to, you know, give him enough to get him to give in. And he doesn't, I, I was getting more agitated, but thinking about it this morning, Hey, he may just need to spend time with me. And that's a different way of, uh, that's not, that's not the way I was raised. I mean, obviously it's, I'm not saying my parents, the society right. wasn't that way. When we see a behavior we don't like, where our question is what's wrong with that. And I think the question has to be is what's right with that. Right. That's interesting because the behavior is just a symptom. It's not, it's not the cause. It's not the, it's not the root of it. Right. You know, Viktor Frankl has, uh, it was a book that just came out. I think it was something with the word yes in it, blue cover. I'm not, have you seen this new book that came out? It was written by someone else with some of his speeches right after the war. Okay. I have not seen this. No. In any event. Um, so someone transcribed his speeches and turned it into a book. I'll look it up while we're talking. 
Yeah. And um, in it, he spoke about one of his first experiences, I think it was as an intern, as a psychologist. He's told that his patient is in the next room. So he walks into the room and there's a mother and a daughter in a psych ward. And the, if I remember correctly, the mother was very agitated and the daughter was very calm. And his mm -hmm. assumption was that the patient was the mother. Yeah. So he started, you know, started talking to her and it became apparent after a few minutes that the patient was the daughter. And what he said from that, I remember the line was, not, not an exact quote, but a abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal. An abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is, is normal? normal? Is normal, yeah. So when he was thinking the mother was the patient, there's something wrong with her, but yeah, someone's just been admitted to a psych ward. It's normal to be a little to bit be. flustered, to walk in here like it's just another day. Completely that would be calm. abnormal. Right, that's abnormal. So that's why it's like, what's right about that behavior, right? What's right about someone What's right about my kid exploding? What's right about my temper tantrums? What's right about those, you know, whatever behavior it is we don't like, even addiction, it's what's right about the addiction is a much more right. helpful. I've heard you mention this um, with your last podcast with, uh, with I would say it's a three hour conversation with Rabbi Chase Taub and you quoted, um, um, I think it was Gibor Mate, I think his name is. And he, he says about, don't ask what's going wrong like ask what's right about the addiction. Like what's what's working in this behavior that's helping me from my, you know, my pain, my loneliness, my anxiety, and that this substance or behavior is actually solving my problem. Correct. So look what's working because that in that is the solution. In that is your guide to find an answer. Absolutely. Yeah, one way he words it, he says, instead of asking why the addiction, ask why the pain. Right, because there's, if there's addiction, there's going to be pain. So what's the pain about? And then, that's a much more compassionate question that will allow us to understand what the addiction is doing for that person, and that's much more useful. Right. To know then, okay, just try to stop it. Try to stop it. Try to stop it. Try to stop it. No, let's replace it with something a lot healthier. The book um, is called Yes to Life, subtitle In Spite of Everything. That's the book I was referring to. Yes. And it's written and it's who's it who's the author so it, it it's written like it's it's advertised like it's victor frankel but i think it says daniel goleman is the one who actually wrote her introduction by daniel goleman interesting definitely check it's a that transcription out. of his speeches as i remember sounds fascinating yeah um i want to i want to ask you another question because addiction so basically what we know about addiction is is that when we have pain or loneliness and we want it well it's pain when we want to escape the pain so we some external substance or behavior that numbs the pain right. or it makes us forget the pain. Yeah, um, I always say escape, numb, or distract. It's one of those escape, things. Right. Um, and the question is, is so, so as a child, right? If somebody's, you know, if a child is experiencing, uh, trying like, like, like Chase Taub said, he's trying, either trying to avoid pain or seeking Seek pleasure. pleasure. Right. right. Okay, if that's what like, you, you look at children in general, I, I think that actually is the behavior of almost all humans. I mean, we're all, our brain is wired to avoid pain and discomfort. That's why we hate going to work out. We hate doing things that are that are not, you know, that feel not good. And we seek comfort and we seek pleasure. So we like to eat that. So we like to, right, all that behavior. So technically that's every human being. So right, where that does that is... shift from, 
for for because not every I mean I don't know what the actual numbers are statistics for subs for people that are addicts, but that's not everyone's case though. That is not everyone's story. Well, when you say right, we seek pleasure and avoid and avoid pain. So if I if I go tonight and I don't struggle with alcohol, but if I go tonight and have a lot of alcohol and I feel pleasure in that moment, and then the next day I wake up feeling terribly, I miss work, um, I'm embarrassed and everything else. For a lot of people, most people, I, I would imagine for myself, that would go into a painful experience. So if right. I want to avoid pain the next time, I will not go back to okay. the drinking. And I'll just take that whole category and say, I have no reason to do it. I remember having a conversation years ago with someone and he said to me, we're talking about a friend, a mutual friend of ours who was going to rehab. And he had said, oh, I understand addiction. And I clearly didn't feel like he did. He said, I understand addiction. I used to be addicted to cigarettes. And I said, and when did you stop? Which someone could be addicted. I said, when did you stop? So he said, well, when I started dating um, my wife, she asked me to stop smoking. So I said, was that the first time you had a good reason to stop? said, yes. I said, and did you stop? He said, yeah, immediately. I never smoked again. I said, then you don't understand addiction. You may mm -hmm. understand physical addiction. And I'm sure that month was very uncomfortable of getting himself off of cigarettes if he was smoking for a long time. But uh, the feeling of being off of cigarettes for five years, having a really bad day and wanting nothing more than to smoke a cigarette and not just nothing more, you feel like a magnet drawn to that cigarette. That's not something that uh, someone who put down cigarettes because his wife didn't want him to smoke will understand. It's a different right. level. It's it's almost uh, I've I've heard the term euphoric recall. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard this this term, so it's like as an addict, we'll go back to these experiences and we'll only remember the euphoria from it. It's like we change the story. So it's like that moment, that peak high from that night of drinking, that's remembered. But somehow the other stuff kind of fade into distant memory. The next day, that you know. The person so wasn't functioning at all or embarrassed. You're or, not remembering it or you're, you're, you're like, is it like, actually, do you think that it's physically, you're not actually able to retrieve those memories or is it no, like- No, it's not, not actually talking? able to retrieve. It just takes a different weight. Okay. You know, it's like, how was that night? Oh, it was amazing like that. Yeah, I kind of like the next day wasn't great, but that peak experience somehow is amazing. highlighted and the mm -hmm. other stuff just retreats into a distance. You know, why doesn't someone- if, if we're just seeking pleasure, why doesn't someone eat cake all day? It's much more pleasurable right. than, than eating healthy food is because afterwards it's not pleasurable. You don't like the way you feel. So that experience is not positive. For an addict, as that experience gets further and further away, it's like that first bite into the cake is much more memorable than the next day vomiting it. Uh -huh. It's interesting though. I think our brain is also wired just in general to remember the good. You look back at history, you look at you know situations, you leave a bad relationship, you, you tend to remember Correct. the good part. You don't remember, oh, times. why did why did we leave? Oh, you'll remember it, the good exactly. stuff. And it's exactly. the power of the exactly. brain is wired like that. It's, it's actually fascinating how that works because so it actually makes sense that 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 we do that, you know, we don't remember. Yeah, a relationship the, is a perfect example. How many people <laughs> return to a relationship? And it's like, if you completely forgot the way you were treated and it's like, no, just like remember the first kiss or something just over and over right. and over. Right. Yeah. So um, in your most recent podcast, which I referred to before with Rabbi Taub on shame, which is a great, um, I still have a half hour left, but you discuss the holiness of intimacy and how when it's, you know, misappropriated, it can be the deepest wound. 
um, right. given that it's the essential part of the soul, it's the touching part of a person. So when misused or abused, it damages the seed versus the branches, as it were, and causes um, such incredible damage that even, God forbid, one episode is can, can really cause harm. Can you talk more to that? Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I was uh, fascinated by, you know, looking at my own story, I didn't have a terrible childhood. I had a good childhood, loving parents and, you know, good home. And we had what we needed. We weren't rich, we weren't poor, but we, you know, we were taken care of. And I went to school and I had friends and I was not the most popular, not the least. I was decent at sports. I was able to study. Like I didn't have um, a terrible childhood on paper, but then I had these experiences of sexual abuse, which I felt like were weighing me down very heavily. Earlier, the podcast, you asked if my uh, my information comes from the School of Hard Knocks or any formal right. coaching. It's definitely the School of Hard Knocks, 100%. I mean, that feeling- No coaching of, at all? I mean, just your your verbiage, your, you know, what comes up for me, the language you use, no, no coaching at all, no formal coaching, just School of Hard Knocks. Well, sitting across from coaches for, for many years- <laughs> For many years. Or therapists or reading books and stuff like that. Okay, so you're- yeah, self-learned. Let's put it that way. Right. Self-taught. And and also it's a, it's a passion of mine. But one of the areas that fascinated me is like, why does this these events in my life seem to hold such a weight? And it wasn't by choice. You know, often people uh, people say this and um, get over it. You know, there was a lot of controversy a number of years ago. Yes. Uh, when Rami Manas Friedman made a comment to someone and he said, uh, um, you know, okay, you didn't have error or whatever. I, I didn't understand exactly the context of what he meant by that. You didn't have error. Um, just get over it, you know? And I actually um, approached approached Manus and I know some had like major issues with, you know, I'm, not, I'm not that approach, you know, Manus, I've heard some of his talks. I've been moved by some, less moved by others, but you know, yeah. overall he's an important, uh, important character in, in Lubavitch and has helped many people. I'm not, I wasn't, Okay, someone made one comment. Let's let's cancel him. But I, right. I did sit down with him, and um, I started talking about it. He he, he comes to he, at the time he was coming to Florida once a year, I think, for Rush and Kipper, and I was at a program that he was at. So I approached him about it, and this is before I was public about my own abuse. And at first he was pretty defensive, but then I said, "Listen, I'm coming from experience. I'm not coming for a gotcha. I'm not. I, I actually want to share something with you." So then he opened up, and we spoke a little bit. And I said, I said, my problem with this, like the message of get over it, which is great, is that you're not introducing anything new to me or anyone else for that matter that's been, that's been sexually abused. They've all said that to themselves a thousand times. What, the way it comes out is after someone has not spoken about it for so long and then finally it's released and here it is, it's something for 20 years from 20 years old someone else wants to look at this, like, come on, like you've lived life until now without it, just get over it. Like that's, if you don't understand it, you want to send that message. And I said, well, that's, that's been tried. I didn't, I didn't need to sit down with the great, uh, the great speaker, Manus Friedman and here, get over it. And this new concept was introduced. I've literally been telling my, that, myself that every day of my life until finally another, you know, therapist introduced a different way, which was get through it, actually talk about it and work through it, understand how it affected you. And I was fascinated by just objectively, not my own story, just looking at it objectively, you know, bird's eye view and saying like, how does those events play such a key role? And when I looked at it, I, I didn't think that the event um, would have been as impactful, say if the same guy brought me into a room and beat me up as often as he sexually abused me. 
And in hearing people's stories, it was like, wow, someone's sexually abused one time or a woman raped one time. And suddenly like their life is so different. And I didn't seem to hear that, especially when it comes to addiction. I think Gabor Mate, who's one of my favorite teachers um, on addiction. And he wrote a book in the realms of hungry ghosts. He said that 100%, what's in the realm of hungry ghosts? Gabor Mate is a very fascinating guy. He was a doctor who eventually was a doctor, I think was an ER doctor. Then he became a paleo care. So people who are at the end of life dealing yeah. just with pain treatment. And then from there, he went to treating addicts. And when he went to treating addicts, he realized the correlation between people in paleo care people in paleo-out-of-care, care, which is just pain treatment and dealing with addicts. And he's like, wow, I'm dealing with the same problem. So someone at the end of life where there's nothing to do with them other than manage their pain, he's like, here I am dealing with addicts. And I feel like, the, I feel like I'm dealing with the same person just 70 years younger. All I'm doing is managing their pain. I almost can't do anything with it. And right. he wrote a book in the realm of hungry ghosts, which details his encounters with like the worst of the worst drug addicts. You know, earlier, I spoke about different levels of addiction. Right. I compared to these people, I'm not an addict, right? I didn't need that much in order to say, let me go to a meeting. It wasn't my wife telling me she doesn't like me smoking figuratively, but it also wasn't, okay, I'm going to reach the point of homelessness and you know, illness and stealing in order to do it and just destroying all aspects of my life, which is who he was dealing with. And one of the things he says is that 100% of the female drug addicts that he worked with were sexually abused, not 99, 100. And he said, and from the men, it was something like 95%. Wow. I was like, wow, like, what is this? What is this about sexual abuse that has this impact on someone? And I think the only answer, I don't think a, a therapist who wants to separate it, or even a scientist who wants to separate like the world from spirituality can answer that question. I think you have to look at sexuality and spirit, like the, from a spiritual perspective and say, there's something about sexuality that just touches our essence a little more. So when it's damaged, it touched like it damages to the core. It damages our essence. That's our kind essence. of where that that yeah the concept came from. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, it you talk about in the twelve steps. It talks about the higher power, right? You know, so and what I'm what I'm learning is is that the higher. So it talks about higher power. It doesn't necessarily refer to God or to what that looks like or what that has to be because for everybody it could be something different. I'm curious for a Jewish person who grew up in a religious home or you know even a Chabad or non-Chabad and now is struggling with addiction and, and is now finding that 12 steps and doing their steps, step work and all that. How, you know, like what does that look like for them, this higher power? Because they grew up religious. They, they officially had, you know, Yiddishkeit, you know, from the time that they were little, from Negevaster by their bed to Shema and, you know, spirituality, we're, we're, we're like giving it to our children all the time. So then they come to this new realization that they have to now find their higher power. What does that look like? Um, broadly, and it's a disadvantage at the beginning and an advantage later on. So as, as explain <laughs> that it's a disadvantage in the beginning and the, oh, this is an advantage I'm, I'm later curious. on. Yeah. I'm, so I'm curious to hear about that. When, if, if I was told I, I had to work with an addict who's new to recovery mm -hmm. and similar situation, same story. One grew up in a religious background. I don't care if it was Christian or Islam or Judaism, but one grew up in a religious background and one didn't. 
I'm going to have a much higher, harder time with the guy who grew up steeped in religion because they have all these associations with the word God, with it for, for good or for bad. Some, it could be in opposite ways. Some is, I already have a relationship with God. I'm good. Like, I don't need right. anything else. And others, like, which was where I was come, where I came from, where it's like, I've already tried it out and it doesn't work. I've heard all the words, like, let's, like, let it go. Right. And um, I, I could, you know, share from my own story. When I, when I began coming to, um, to meetings, I didn't want to look later on in the steps. Like I saw the words God and higher power and stuff like that. And I was just like, okay, I don't want to go there. And what's mm -hmm. amazing is I had started going to meetings. I wasn't sharing with anyone. Now I'm public about it. But at that point in time, of course, I wasn't. I was just as embarrassed as everyone else who starts out. Yeah. And I started going to meetings in Hollywood, Florida. Eventually, I added South Beach. I was going to Hollywood and South Beach, going to meetings. And I had a Jewish sponsor in one place, but he was very like detached from anything um, spiritual, I felt like. And then I started talking to another guy who came from a very Christian, religious, like was actually a monk for, for a while. And he had like a very deep reservoir of knowledge and understanding and comfort with the whole God concept. And I'm like, these are the two main people that I'm talking to. And it was just so different. And I was actually resonating much more with the, 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 the Christian, I don't want to say the Christian, the Christian guy, right? Who was right. able to talk about it, answer it. It seemed to match the, the, uh, the words, but emotionally, I was so resistant to anything related to that. I was like, I already tried this. I don't want it. My, my, my attitude was like, God doesn't exist, but if he does, I hate him. Hmm. Kind of where, where I was at. Yeah. So that was, that was a hurdle to get over. And how did I arrive at that conclusion is that I heard all these words, you know, growing up and you're singing songs, Hashem is here, Hashem is there. So you're hearing the concept. Now when I'm working with someone, I just got to fire God. Like whatever it was, it wasn't working. And I always right. bring, uh, you know, in Tehillim, it's like King David says, right? Yeah. Based in you will find that God is good. So I just ask very simply, like, is what you have good? Like you're okay, you're godly and you pray three times a day and you got the lingo down pat and your kids are in Jewish schools and everything else. I just want to know if what you have, like it's or your definition of God, if whatever's happening, if it's good, objectively, yes or no. And obviously if they're coming into addiction, they didn't like come out of curiosity, they came out of desperation. So the answer is no. So I said, okay, it's not my words, it's King David words that you haven't tasted God yet. So just try, try something else. Try it in a different way. And then what I find, I, I said, like, at first, it's a disadvantage. Afterwards, it's an advantage. What I found um, is that eventually it comes full circle. You know, some of the podcasts I did with Shays or the conversations with Simon, I had to forget everything I learned in order to approach it from the 12 steps. And when I was able to meet God there and develop a spirituality that worked for me, then looking back at the same old text that I was comfortable with that I grew up, then I had these aha moments and I saw what Tanya was talking about, right? Sometimes things are just said in a way that are, you know, it's filtered through a very harsh or judgmental and almost musr approach. Yeah. Even though it's chassidus, you know? And Fascinating. here I'm hearing the same text, but I'm sitting with Shay, so I'm sitting with Simon. And it's like the same words, 
But now I'm looking at it through the filter of recovery and hearing it from people who speak it in a compassionate way as well. I'm like, oh, okay, now this jives. And all of a sudden I, I really feel like it's added to, um, to my spirituality. And the same sponsor I mentioned earlier, who was a Christian monk at some point, um, fortunately, he told me that early on, which he was not, he was not one of those he could have, but he was not one of those who uh, were trying to <laughs> recruit a Jew into the Christian right. fold, which some are, right? There are many right. who, there are many missionaries who feel that way. He told me the opposite. He said that you'll know that your healing has begun to set in, especially around spirituality and God, when you return to your Jewish roots. Wow. I think there's an actually um, s similar story with Carl Jung and some patient that came to him and he, he asked her, I don't know the exact details, but something about like, and she came to him and he says, you, you need to return to your Judaism to find true peace. Um, oh, yeah, I have to find that. I, I, I find the, the source of that story, but that's fascinating. So what you're saying at first it's a disadvantage and eventually full circle, it, it becomes more of an advantage. So like you're saying in the beginning of your recovery, Judaism, you had to make it your own, basically, is what I'm hearing you say. Right. But yeah. for someone to make something their own that they've never experienced, I didn't, I, they don't come in with an opinion. So it's, right. yeah, I've heard about this God concept, but I've never really been to church. And if it was, it was, you know, for a, con a, a relative's wedding or the same with, yeah, I went to shul here and there, Yom Kippur, but I don't have this emotional attachment okay. of like, uh, you know, seeing a Rebbe do something I totally couldn't jive with or getting kicked out of yeshiva or being told um, I'm not good in the name of God or specifically right. with sex addiction, that my sin is the worst sin in the world. It's a Holocaust. It's, you know, all of the, a lot of the Jewish things that are said, you know, Chase and I discussed some of those concepts in yeah. that podcast and go into it, you know, and he shares it in a much more compassionate way. But the way these ideas were shared with me, it's like, okay, so you're asking me to embrace a God who's set me up in such a way that at 12, 13 years old, I was already addicted to something that's the worst sin. Hmm. And, you know, when I'm talking to the sponsor today, I'm, I'm not talking about that God. Like, you want to talk to a rabbi? Don't talk to a rabbi. We're not here. We're not here. But we're talking about a different kind of God. We're talking about a God who, care, who cares for you, who guides you, who has a plan for you, who's been with you from the moment you were born until now and navigating those things. We're looking, we're, we're trying to find the good in all of that. What's right about watching, watching porn? And what I, is I right? What what's is right, right about, about watching porn? Yeah. You have, so you have a teenager who's going through absolute hell, has no resources. His parents have no capacity to understand what he's going through. He has no financial resources or other resources to be able to get the help he needs. He's just, he's in hell and he's not the boss. He doesn't have any of any autonomy to deal with, uh, to deal with his life and doesn't have, and the people in his life who are his caretakers can't deal with it either. So mm -hmm. he needs to numb, dis distract and escape. That's what, how else is he going to survive his teenage so he finds for whatever reason that porn works for him and that feeling that he gets from porn just catapults him into a different state a state of total peace total safety everything's okay for those moments right. and as tough as tough as things get in his home he can always escape right back there he's got this little corner in his in his house that he can go to and i'm safe again there's everything right with porn in that setting right you know what's what's right with eating bugs when you're you know, in the forest and you have no food. There's everything right with it. You got to survive. Might they be dangerous? Might you get an infection? Yeah, but if you don't eat it, you're going to die. So, you know, afterwards, mm -hmm. you're going to think, you're going to think, you're going to thank God that there were these bugs available to you for to eat and you have some protein and some nutrients. You're not going to walk around. 
so later in life, right? So what would happen in that setting? Someone is in a, a survival situation and they're eating whatever they could in order to survive. And sure, yeah, there are some infections that come from it or some, some other challenges, but ultimately it keeps them alive. And then later in life, now they're back in society and they have access to healthy food and everything else, but they keep going back to, to the bugs or the unhealthy food or whatever else it is, then you wouldn't say to them, like, bugs are terrible and horrible and it's the worst thing ever. You'd say it made perfect sense in that setting, but let me show you a different way. You no longer need to, you need nutrients. I know like, okay, the bugs were there for you. The porn was there for you and you had nothing else. But now but you now, have all this autonomy, all these resources. Look at everything available to you. You're not in the same situation. You don't have to. Um, you don't have to take the scraps anymore. You're right. lonely and you want to escape into a scene that gives you some sense of connection. It did, and it works for a few minutes. I'm not saying it doesn't. It feels good, and it gives you a momentary escape. But those are the scraps of life. Let me show you how you can walk into a real connection and a real relationship with someone and real friendships and real honesty and real intimacy. And it's not the scraps anymore. So you don't need that, but it's not something bad. When someone's coming with the overlay of sin, hmm. then when someone's coming with the overlay of sin, it's just very unhealthy. But I think in most situations with most addicts, it would be the equivalent of berating someone for eating non-kosher when they're in a situation where they had no food. Well, there's one thing that came up for me as you were speaking, when you said like, you know, let me show you the God, this, this God that we're talking about now, but it's truly the same God. It's just that the, perhaps the way it was presented mm -hmm. is, is not, and, and I'm curious about that. Like, I want to learn more about what we can do because, you know, you see people in recovery, they're not usually in their teens. You don't see people in their teens. It's, it's very unlikely, right? I mean, it's usually older. I mean, the meetings that I've gone to, I've seen older people, not um, young folks, though I'm sure there are some, I don't know the exact statistics, but what, for, for a child that is experiencing pain that you describe. And sometimes like Chase Tab talks about, it's just ecstasy. What, what is it? Just existing is the pain, just being. It doesn't have to be something like they may not be going through a trauma. They just, they're uncomfortable in their own body and they're constantly seeking pleasure and to avoid pain. My, I'm wondering what we can do for these children today so that they don't have to find their drug of choice till they feel good in their bodies kind of avoid that whole process or is that unavoidable? What do you I, think? No, I think that? it's definitely avoid, avoidable. No, there has to be a better way of, of doing it. And, and my evidence for that is that where, where would I be had I not found these rooms in this message? Right, if for whatever reason, let's say the room I went to had a much different, you know, just was made up of more people speaking the same thing that I was always hearing from others. I wouldn't be where I was now. So, I wouldn't have the sense of peace. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have had a models for a life where I can have the best of both worlds, so to speak. And if the message was continuous, like if the same message I heard then was the message I heard as a child, I'm not saying it was necessarily spoken, but it was certainly the message I heard. That's what I got. Right. Um, then it wouldn't have been that, as effective. Right, the negative would have continued. And the inverse is true as well. I, if it worked when I was 28, 29, getting into recovery, that those messages resonated deeply with me and started healing a part of me and gave me a path and a model out of the hell I was in, then why couldn't the same thing have worked five years earlier? So yeah, I certainly think there's, 
there are things we can do about it. It's one of the reasons why I do what I can to feature and promote voices like Herb Simon or Herb Shays, because I know people hear those voices and are extremely moved. Oh, actually, I was saying this story earlier. So what happened was, as I right when I started going to meetings, uh, there was a, a shliach in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Rabbi Schneer Kaplan. Mm-hmm. And I'd often go to his house um, for Shabbos. And one Friday night I was there and we had this habit of kind of trading books. I was a reader. Um, he was a reader. I don't know if there are any readers left anymore with uh, smartphones. Podcasts. But... And, and, and... <laughs> right. But back then we were both readers and I'd often come to his house with books. He'd have books for me. And he gives me this book, not knowing at least consciously that I was in recovery. And he gave me this, this book, uh, God of Our Understanding by Rabbi Shays Taub. I didn't know who Shays was. I didn't, you know, and I was just, I had, I was just at the second and third step in recovery, which starts dealing with um, the God and the higher power and stuff like that. And this, although I don't want to say the book resonated with me as much as it planted a seed. Like I was mm-hmm. reading it and I was still resistant to some of it. I liked the way Shays wrote and I thought, so his explanations were clear. I don't know that it like it resonated deeply as much as it planted the seed of like, hey, is this possible? Is this really possible to that Judaism that I rejected that didn't work can be molded with recovery? And as I went further along, it was a book I referred to always like, oh, okay, like it's, I'm, I'm not like at two different paths. Do I take Judaism or do I take recovery? Like, which God am I going to believe in? But it's, it's really compatible. And it's not compatible, and Chase goes into this, it's not compatible because uh, recovery has this wishy-washy definition of God. It does not have a, a wishy-washy. Clear. Oh, it doesn't clear. have, you're saying it's very clear. It's very clear, yeah. It doesn't name it, right? It doesn't name it right. Yahweh or Allah or right. something like that. It doesn't name it, but it's, it's very specific. It's... Um, as an example, you know, Chase talks about this. A lot of people in recovery may not agree with what I'm saying because they'll get hung up on the words as we understood God. So it's like, however, oh, we understood it. And God right. stands for drunks or the doorknob. And you'll hear comments like that all the time. But when you go through the steps, just reading the steps, I'm not even talking about the other literature. It talks about turning our will and our life over to the care of God as they understood God. That's a pretty strong claim because if I say someone cares, that's got to be a personal care. That's not, not right. like cares about the world. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about. Because I'm turning my will and life over to the care of God. That means now I've just defined a, a personal God. And I think even within Judaism, there isn't like a hundred percent opinion that the relationship is. I think there are diff- differing opinions, not in Chabad, not in Chassidus, but there are some opinions that God involves himself more, I think, in the big matters than in every individual. I forget who, Moral or something. I forget who it was who has certain opinions like that. Mm-hmm. But the 12 steps doesn't, it's a very personal, personal God. Or later on when it says step 11 about uh, praying only for the knowledge of God's will for us. Well, like God has a will for us. That's a very specific, that's a very specific God. That's not some, that's not just God creator. That's God guide involved, caring, um, positive, wants good for us. Like this is, there are very specific claims. I can go on, but it's not right. a, it's it's not the doorknob and it's not the group of drums. It's a so then it's so power. then what I'm hearing you say is that it's actually very clearly talking, not just specific, not naming it, but it's definitely talking about a higher power being a god, and and it's 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 a big piece of the twelve steps. 
And I found that very compatible with not just the Jewish God broadly, but the one specifically that I learned about in Crown Heights, in Chassidus, like mm. that God, I found it very, like it, 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 it goes well. Right, it. it connects. Yeah. Very deeply, yeah. So taking a different turn just for a second here, I've always been amazed at people like yourself who are publicly sharing their story. And I find that it takes such strength and courage you know, I've heard people say that I heard this line, I recover loudly so that others, other people don't die quietly. And that resonated, that really resonated with me. But, and I've also heard from people that are in recovery, that their family is very supportive of their recovery and their strength. But as long as they don't talk about it too loudly, they don't want to, you know, you know, they're very proud of them in their house, but like, they're almost embarrassed kind of of their loved ones. And I look at it very differently. I think that family and loved ones should be so proud. I mean, personally, for me, I'm blown away by the strength of people in recovery and their willingness to fight the urge every single minute of every day. So I'm curious, like, I know this is part of the recovery. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, I'll say that I was somewhat public about my story prior to the addiction where I spoke about a sexual abuse. But in those early talks where I spoke about sexual abuse, I made reference to addiction a few times, but I always kind of felt more comfortable as someone assumed I didn't drink than I didn't watch porn. Mm. That was, I, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't being specific about addiction. Eventually, um, when I started dating my wife, got engaged, got married, like during that process, she had just this tremendous amount of pride in, in my recovery. And I know it wasn't, it wasn't uniform there. I knew that, you know, some of my friends' wives were, yes, they were proud of the fact that they were in recovery. Didn't even mind if they were somewhat outspoken about it. Just don't mention the program. Like, don't, right. don't mention that this is for sex addiction. That's and, like, you, you touched on that a little bit in your, in your TED talk where you're like, couldn't you have given me a different addiction? Like, this is right. so embarrassing, right? Yeah, it's a joke. I got the... Um, I like the, the, the best and the worst of addictions, like the one that's most socially accepted and least socially accepted. The work addiction and the sex addiction, you know? Oh yeah, <laughs> so, right. Society's, um, you know, yeah. Yeah, they see you working your tail off and you know, you're using it in the same way an addict would yep. to, to numb, escape and distract. And it's like, wow, this guy is, you know, the best. Mm. This guy's amazing. And especially the results that come from it, you're like, okay, if it's working and you're making money, then, you know, this is the, it's, we, we don't even have to qu like qualify the word success. We're just talking about someone like right. this. They're successful. And uh, then you have the sex addiction, which, you know, depending on how it manifests, but for most of us, it's just plain shameful. And what gave me the uh, strength to start talking about it was two things. One, you know, I never think of it as courage. I think of it more as purpose. Like it's not for a purpose, so you do it. It's like... I didn't start talking about um, sex abuse. And that was obviously the first time you tell your story and share that some of those things because I worked up enough courage to share my story. It was because I worked up enough purpose not to care about the, not to care about the fear. That was like, I, I saw the result. You speak to enough people and they think this is not going on, not going on. And I'm like, uh, if you knew how often this was going on, you'd be wondering like how we're talking about anything else. Like this yeah. is so common, the amount, you know, and I really think that even though we talk a lot about sexual abuse, I think that 
most sexual abuse, we're still talking about the Rebbe's and the teachers and stuff like that. Most sexual abuse is relatives, is brothers Family. and sisters. Families, yeah. like that's most sexual abuse. And we still haven't talked about it because we're still othering the abuser a lot. Yeah. We're, you know, and especially when they're children. What do you mean by that, othering? They're a monster. It's, it's the most helpful, unhelpful thing to call them a monster. Most, most people who sexually abuse children, that's, if you knew them, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call them a monster. There are some, right? You hear certain stories yeah. and you're, you're horrified. This person has 300 victims. It was like, yeah, yeah they've, they've essentially turned into a monster. But take my story, for example. Mm-hmm. And he, by family members, for example, he was referred to as a monster. And when I've shared the story with others, he was referred to as a monster. But this guy was 14 years old when I was eight, 15 years yeah. old when I was, you know, nine, 16 years old as this was going on, I don't know what was going on in his life, but when mm-hmm. I confronted him later on and had conversations, his re- it took me a while to get there. And I have a talk online no. where I go into detail on that. If people are thinking of confronting their abuser, it's called Secrets, it's mm-hmm. on YouTube. And I, I go into, uh, that process was very healing. I was sitting down and talking to him, but one of the things that happened was once I was able to break through his initial defense, and I shared with him how he affected me. And I got through some of his denial about what he thought had happened and what really happened. He broke down shaking. Mm. Like he, and he started like hyperventilating. He was, I don't know if I would call it a seizure, but it looked something like it. Sure. Couldn't talk for several minutes. Eventually turns to the therapist and he says, am I a monster? Can I go back home to my kids? Like barely able to get the words out. Mm. And I just asked like, would a monster ever ask if they're a monster? Would they care if they're a monster? Wow. So he's not the quintessential monster. And often though, we just put a blanket, like anyone who sexually abuses a monster, I'll tell you the truth. So, you know, if you give me the choices between his memories or my memories, I'd rather mine. I'd rather have to deal with, at the time I felt like I was losing the wrestling match. He locked the door, he won, he did what he wanted to me, but... I'd much rather be Me saddled with my memory, yeah, than, than his. Yeah. And, I, and I say that with compassion for him. I think he has a tough life ahead of him to figure those things out. I wouldn't have the same compassion to someone who was 40 and done this to 100 people, right? It's not the same, but right, right. most stories are my story. There are more stories like that than the people yeah. who've abused so many people. And I think that when we other them, makes it a little bit more difficult so when a brother has abused a sister instead of it being a conversation between okay how do i heal this this has damaged me incredibly and possibly there's a lot of guilt on the other part as well not to put them completely in the same category but just to say that there is a struggle that they're both going through and we're not othering them there's something that happened here and there was something likely that a child was was going through and at that age when they did something you know, it depends how you're talking about it. For the victim, it's the same. It makes no difference whether the knife that goes into you had a 13-year-old standing behind it or a 30-year-old. Right. If there's different force, there's different force. But I'm saying if it's in you, you're not like, oh, this, does, this shouldn't hurt because it was from a 13-year-old. But we do, we, we would certainly treat a, a physical crime much different, right? Then we would uh, charge them as a juvenile, right? That's a concept. Right. When it comes to sexual abuse, there's like no such thing as charging as a juvenile. Like every, mm. everyone is the same right? They're a monster. How dare you sexually abuse? And I know from people who've 
as a child have done something to a family member or relative and hearing them and they're trapped, they're trapped in this prison and they feel like they're irredeemable. They can never get out of this. And I, I feel for them. I feel for people who've, who've, uh, who've you know, done certain things as a child or hurt other people and suddenly this is categorized into not only the worst sin, but a sin that you cannot come back from. You're a monster. You're not a human. I don't think it's the right way. That's interesting. Some people would say that you're normalizing it and you're, and you're, you're like accepting it. I mean, it's, it's a huge level of forgiveness, I, I have to say, but, you know, <laughs> I think some people will say to that, will speak to that and say, you know, it depends if they continued the behavior, right? If they did it, you know, a one-time thing as a kid exploring versus a continued behavior that they did with many multiple people or multiple times. Right. So let, let's talk about the, the, um, Right. Someone say, I'm, I'm normalizing the behavior. Let's take that approach. Right. I'm normalizing the behavior and the risk associated with like, here I am showing compassion or understanding for someone. So, so what's going to happen if I'm showing compassion, understanding is the risk that they're going to do it more or they're going to do it less. What's so if I'm normalizing, you're saying like, oh, it's OK if a 13 year old abuses. So what? So if a 13 year old kid is listening to this podcast right now. Which is unlikely, by the way. Unlikely, but let's say they hear me talking. Then we go home. It's like, oh, it's okay for me to abuse my seven-year-old sister. Mm -hmm. Or, right. I'm not really a monster. I'm just, you know, having a hard day. Right. Or is it, why is it, is is that a natural behavior for a 13-year-old? Is that something they want to go to just with permission? And I I think this connects well with the other conversation about religion and the messages that were given about, uh, you know, let's take Rip Chase and Rip Simmon. What might someone criticize about their approach when they're talking? Is you're normalizing a religious behavior. And what, I'm, and, and, and what I would imagine Chase would answer or is, and do you think you're gonna get more of that behavior or less when you denormalize right. or normalize? That's, that sounds exactly like what he would say. Yeah, so, and, and that's, that's what ends up happening with all these things. Our instinct is we gotta pounce on it to eradicate it. Right. Whereas if we have trust in people and the goodness of people that in their good and best, they want to do the right thing. And we believe, or, you know, to, to bring it to Judaism, it's that our product is a good enough product. And I don't have to be so afraid of someone peeking out, peeking out a little bit, go explore. You want to see if there's something I explored, I explored for 10 years and now I'm coming back Yeah. in a lot of ways. So what is like that confidence to allow someone to say, you know, I think my product is the best, but if you want to do a taste test with others, by all means. When someone threatens us like ever so slightly, do we, oh my goodness, we got to get this kid out of yeshiva. He's sinning and he's causing others to sin. Is that our approach? Or it's like, can we be more understanding and more accepting? Just under, just knowing that, especially the Chassis explains it, that the truest expression of a healthy, full Jewish person is like paramitzvahs, right? That's the way it's going to be expressed. So I don't really need to box them in and scare the bejesus out of them. I just need to allow the healthy expression to come out and it'll be there. And if it's right. not there yet, then okay. So I work to create a more healthy environment. I don't work to create more fear and more. Right. And the same, I think, is with most people who abuse. It's fascinating. Um, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I don't want to keep you much longer, but let me finish off with another question. Well, first of all, do you do you find that, in your experience, that you you know been in touch with a lot of people in, in recovery, 
that most times addiction has a mental health component, like it's a dual diagnosis, or do you think that someone can simply have a chemical addiction to substances or whatever, whatever, you know, behavior without trying to build a pain, meaning that it's just a chemical or, you know, an addiction. I've heard people talk about that, but I, I just, I'm having a hard time. You're saying like a physical addiction? So like, there are people that say that there's some people that just are chemically wired differently and they are addicts and they're going to find until they find, and they could live their lives and not find it. But if they find their drug of choice, they they're right there that numb their pain. And now they're, now they're fully addicted. But what I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to see is I find that there's a lot, most times there's a mental health component with it, that it's like they're, they have pain and that pain isn't just only their existence pain, but it could be anxiety. It could be depression. It could be trauma. It could be, but is it ever just someone who has a chemical addiction trying to dull their pain? Yeah. I don't want to say ever or never. Like those aren't good right. words. I'm open to the possibility that it exists, that someone, uh, you know, has a good normal life and they just developed an addiction for no real reason, but it hasn't like I always hear the stories and if I, when I'm seeing someone as an addict and I'm hearing their story and I haven't heard that detail just yet, I'll, I'll give you an example of a story I heard the other day, right? So the, the, and I remember when I first met this guy, because I know him for a while, actually, and there was no like obvious stories that I heard, like not sexual abuse, not physical abuse, not anything else. But as I got to know him, he shared that when he was about uh, three years old, he was left in the, in the bath with his one-year-old brother or sister, I don't remember. And his one-year-old brother, I think it was brother, yeah, drowned. And somehow, obviously he doesn't remember the story, but somehow the way it was relayed to him was that he was somewhat responsible for this. And he's oh, a wow. bad person as a result. And I, I've kind That's, of always found that- There's some trauma. There's some, something, there's something. something. Like what, what gets them there? Although I have met, I should say, I have met a few people recently who it almost feels like there isn't that much other than them being extremely, extremely sensitive. So it acts as if there's that much, like there's almost this- uh, The HSP component. Yeah, like, right, highly sensitive people. Like they're, it's existential just to be alive and see like mm. any hypocrisy or anything any, that's off. It's a, it's a trauma of all traumas like, to see like a story on the news about someone stealing from someone. It's like, how could this happen? How could someone respected have, you know- Done this done this or something like that like it just they take it on they're taking wrong. on other exactly. like empaths they're taking on other people's um pain and suffering for their own so it's like it's like they have experienced that or it can even be their own but for them it's a very significant trauma when right. maybe someone else who went through that not to put the responsibility on them it just i think that there's like some people come in with that like they almost don't want to be in this world they're not made for this world mm. yeah I haven't met too many of those, but I. But there but are general, quite a there are quite well, a few people who struggle with that who do have that kind of pain. Um, I'm sure, but then I find in their story that there's also abuse, physical, psychological, emotional, sexual. There's also going to be those things in the story, not right. where there's virtually none. Right. Okay. Um, I wanted to touch a little bit on codependency, but I don't know if we have time for that. Go ahead. Um, okay. I do three so, hour talks. So I <laughs> I'm not looking to do three hours. So, so like, tell me a little bit, you know, codependency. It's a big, it's like, it's a, it's a big word right now. It's like trauma, um, or trigger. These are big words, codependency now. Um, so what is your knowledge on codependency? If you could like briefly just explain that, um, 
for parents, family, and friends of an addict? How does that show up? Right. I'm certainly not an expert on it, but um, you know, seeing enough like step removed or oftentimes there's almost always like two or three addictions going on with someone. Mm -hmm. So I've worked with people who are addicted to sex, but are also addicted to the drama, right? And addicted to right. someone else. But you know, what I found in it is it's basically an addict, it's basically addicted to someone else, addicted to the drama of someone else's life. Hmm. Just so like it, that whole codependency that whole is such drama. a broad word, it can mean almost so nothing. Right. right. So the the original word, right, was co-addict. Okay. And the co-addict was or, yeah, codependent, right? Is a right codependent. They're they're viewed as being addicted to the addict. The addict, right? And you see it. And you know, what what is what does that mean, right? So, someone who's addicted to sex will essentially believe that my life won't be okay unless I have yeah. what I need sexually. And it can it can take on different forms. It can take on extreme abstinence also, right? Where, okay, I gotta be perfect in this realm. And that can also be an expression of it. Or it can be, I'm just gonna go there when I really, really need to, but I have like a, you know, a stash, so to speak, that I think about often, but I go to, you know, in my most dire circumstances. But there's a sense that in order for life to be okay, I need this to be okay. Like this part of my life to be in order. And with a co-addict, what I've seen is that their, their mood swings, they're like where they are is, Completely dependent. dependent on how they're they doing today. It's constantly like checking in and checking in. Like, are they okay? Right. Are they sober? Are they this? Are they that? And to right. get to that place of, yeah, I'm okay with, with wherever they are. And I think oftentimes, especially when it's parents, I've seen parents, I say create it, but almost like, almost want it with their kids. Like when things are going like too good for too long, and it's like, okay, what, what relevance do I have? Hmm. What's my job today if my kid's not desperately needing my help? Wow. It so some, feels like I, I've seen an energy of kind of pushing that a little so, bit. So what does a non-codependent parent of an addict look like? <laughs> or family member? You know, it's so fine, um, the, uh, the, the line. I, I have a friend who's um, had a son that's been you know, drug dealing and arrested and like, you know, multiple times for drug offenses and all sorts of things. And I, the way he says it is like, I'm available to help him, but I'm not going to go to prison every time he gets locked up. Like I just, but when he calls me, I'm a hundred percent available. Like if he needs me, but I'm never going to care about him more than he's going to care about himself. And maybe there's a, a detachment. I'm never going to care about him more than he cares about himself. Yes. That's a powerful line. That's a, that's a powerful line. Yeah, meaning I, not that I, I may mean, care, right, emotionally, but I'm never going to care for the verb. I'm never going to care for the verb of caring for okay. more than the person cares for themselves, not care about. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. That's a, that's a, a good answer. It okay, is so tough. It is it's very tough. tough. Yeah. One way, I've, one way I've known, one way I've seen this, and this, this may be helpful, um, in general, so if I'm stuck on a decision and I don't know if it's coming from my ego or somewhere else, right? Like, do I want to do X, Y, or Z? And they both seem like reasonably good options. So I'm not saying to take like some crazy thing, some a crazy idea versus another idea, but it's, uh, do I want to spend 
let's say as an addict, there's oftentimes uh, this thing, okay, around my family, maybe my family of origin, there's some discomfort. Like, do I want to spend holidays with them? Okay. And that could be coming from the healthy part of you. That could be coming from the unhealthy part of you, the ego, trying to mm -hmm. protect or something else. And you're really stuck in this decision. And I think there are many aspects of that, right? So it could be, I want to do X, Y, Z for my child as a codependent. I want to do X, Y, Z for my child, but I'm not sure if that's going to be helping them or not helping them. So is meaning, is it coming from my addiction or is it coming from a, a better place? So I found a good rule of thumb for that is to be willing to put that decision fully and entirely in someone else's hands. Meaning asking somebody else's opinion or having right. someone else trust someone who understands it. So I, okay. so I would go to them and say, okay, I'm unsure if the, that's one of the ways a sponsor can help. Right. Say, okay. I'm unsure if I should do X, Y, or Z or, or A, A or B, right. right. These are my two options. This is why I'm thinking this. This is why I'm thinking that, but I'm not sure if one of them is coming from, like my ego, my need to self-protect, my fears, you know, mm -hmm. or the, you know, the same with caring for a child. Can you make the decision for me? And then even if they made the same decision that your ego would have made because you suspended the decision in someone else it didn't come from your ego. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Though, though I wonder how that comes together with the idea that nobody really is an expert on your own life, except for you, you really, you know, like that whole idea that everything you have, you need and everything you need, you have, like you're, you have that knowledge, you have that. Exactly. Information. So you're making the decision. You're not giving them decision-making power of your life. You're making the decision that in this area, they should decide, mm -hmm. but you like, you're empowering them with a the decision. You haven't given up control of your life and saying, okay, right. please program me like a, you know, okay. like I'm a computer. You're, you're saying for this specific concept, do I go home with my family to the holidays or not? Okay. I've made the decision to empower you with it because I don't know if my ego is making the decision. Ah, and, okay. and once you let go of that, once, once it's suspended in midair and you don't know what that person is going to decide, even it if they possibly be your ego that would because, have made, it, made the decision. Right. So you kind of let go of it. Right. So for example, if a co-addict is unsure of, am I enabling? Am I not enabling? Is this coming from my ego? Is this coming from something else? Well, are you willing to suspend that decision to somebody else, to somebody else? And not just anybody else, right? Someone you trust, someone understands the issue. It, uh, it can honestly be another addict. Mm. The original, like the original AA didn't start with the sponsors who had the years of recovery and the sponsees. Right. It started with two people in the same place. I'll sponsor you, you'll sponsor me. Right. That's powerful, actually. If you think about that and, and it, it, you take that a step deeper, just because you let go of it, and you've given you, you like you you've released control. Now it, it can't come from your ego. Now it can come exactly. from the right place. You've heard of the concept. I don't know where it comes from. Uh, where when two people sit down, it's two Yatzer types against one. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's. I forget the exact line, but I know what you're referring to. I remember this. I'm not remembering the whole thing. Um, I, I just want to finish one. But go ahead. Okay. So yeah. So, what would you advise someone? Who's listening here who has a family member a loved one who is an, is maybe an active addiction what is the best way for family to help their loved ones get the help that they need or is that even impossible is that and it has to come from that person i mean what would be your advice to family members of somebody who's an active addiction every every situation is different there's like, sure yeah there's and there's different kind of addictions yeah. Right. Is it, is it life-threatening? If it's life-threatening, then sometimes you have to step in in a way that can actually 
hurt the person in the long term, but it's you're worried about you know someone really hurting themselves. So you yeah. can't always sit back. Every situation is every situation is unique. There is a um, in the big book of AA. There's a chapter called "To Wives," I think is the name of the chapter, and it talks about exactly this concept of when a wife notices that their husband, that's the way it reads, you know, the typical mm-hmm. dy- dynamic, but not everyone. The wife notices that the husband is um, in addiction. He's not there yet. What, what should her approach be? And listen, the rule of thumb is that the more you force it, the, the longer it's gonna take for them to come around. But at the same right. point in time, they have to know there's solutions and they have to know there's- Options. Yeah, there's no solutions and they have to have an address to call when something when something happens. So the way, actually, let me tell you a story, a specific story. So I had a, um, I've done certain things for our public. So you hear different stories. I, I was hearing someone talking one day and it was very clear that, you know, sometimes a story has a beginning, middle and an end. And this story had a beginning and middle. Mm. right there was there was no resolution no no, no end there was no resolution in the story so I approached um I approached this guy afterwards just you know chatting and I said to him um so he used the word overwhelmed I think in the conversation and I said so what do you do when you're overwhelmed and he said well used to be I would just have sex with someone now I have a hundred day challenge with a friend not to have that we both no masturbation, no sex, no porn or anything. So I said, great. And what do you do? Day one one Like, I was like, right. what's the plan there? So I said, well, I don't know. I haven't really thought, of, thought about that. But to me, the alarm bells go off right away. Okay, we're dealing with a sex addict because no one's counting days on anything you're not addicted to. I'm not. Right. You know, people say, oh, I'm not an addict because I stayed 14 days away from alcohol. So it proves I'm not addicted or even 14 months away. Well, if you're counting, there's something going on most because most people are counting. So an addict can't stop the behavior, meaning he may be able to st- stop for an extended period of time, but I'm you're thinking never going to do this. I'm thinking about, I'm doing it or I'm thinking about not doing it. Doing it, right. Right, so someone who doesn't struggle with alcohol may drink today, may not. It's kind of irrelevant, not irrelevant, but it's not that meaningful in their life. If I'm counting, I, I know people who said this, I know I'm not addicted because I've gone 45 days without um, vodka without any hard alcohol multiple times and the question is why are you counting right why, why, why what is this about so he's telling me he's counting 100 days that he's not going to have sex why why are you counting what is the challenge if you didn't want to do it just don't do it why is this what is it what's the challenge going on so I shared with him some of my story as I always did but I saw there was some resistance and I said um I said just so you know there's this concept of sex addiction this guy had never heard of it he only thought there can be addiction to drugs and everything else. And I said, you have my number. If anything ever happens, like, hey, you call me in a year, you call me in a month, you call me tomorrow, it doesn't make a difference. You got my number. If you ever want to know more about this subject, call me. I'll never shame you. I'll never say I told you so. I'll never, anything. Like, what I see going on does seem to me, okay, so I'm not stuck in my opinion. I'm not looking to change you or anything else. But if this does get to the point where it's unmanageable, here's my number. And you'll never, I promise, you'll never hear an I told you so. You'll never hear any of those things go on with your life. It was less than a year later. I got a call from him, like, at the end, like, literally at the end. So when he gave, when he called me at the end, he was, like, 
so desperate when he called me. That wasn't an easy phone call. So desperate. Sure. He was so desperate to the point that I asked him to stay on the phone with me while I got someone else to be with him. That's, that's how, that's where he was. Hmm. The addiction had brought him like, you know, to the end, complete, total humiliation, uh, whatever. Right. Gone. But what, so what was I trying to do in that situation is to know that he knows that it exists. He did not know that before the call, that sex addiction exists. So now he has a name for what's going on. He knows that there's a solution. There are people who figured this out a little bit and he has an address or a phone right. number. That's all I was trying to do. Had I taken that call and said, I see where this is going and I would have pushed and pushed and pushed, I would have moved it further along. But mm. if this guy was addicted to crystal meth and there was the risk you know, every single day of buying something laced with fentanyl and dying, maybe it's treated in a different way. So I don't want to give a, a blanket rule. Blanket statement, right. Blanket statement. But when he called me and this is, well, and this thought, when he called me, there was no convincing. There's nothing I needed to do. I could have said anything. He was, he was, he had the, the wonderful gift of desperation. And in that moment, I was able to share everything. It was zero resistance. Just right. let me tell you, let me tell you where to go. Let me tell you what to do. And those, that first time he walked into a meeting, it wasn't me schlepping him. You know, he was, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but he was eating it up. He was, you know. He was ready for it. So what I'm hearing you say is, is that, family or friends can offer to somebody who's in active addiction an awareness of it looks like there's a struggle here i don't know but here's an address if you if at a time you're ready when you're ready here's my number here's just come no judgment we'll help you we will we'll help you get the help that you need yeah often right oftentimes it won't be family members so there are some people who reached out to to me for example and said hey i have a family member who's struggling would you be open to, to talking to them Right. And that's probably the, the best way is find someone who has that specific addiction and someone who's been through the path knows how to push and, and the risk isn't as high, right? right. If, if, if I screw up with this guy, it's not his spouse. It's not his right. okay. parents. It's not, so sometimes- so it's, Sometimes it's better to have somebody as an outsider. Somebody that, else, that and especially could, right. someone who's navigated it themselves. The reason I was able to make an impression on this guy and I wasn't able to say I have no judgment. I shared my story. And I shared aspects of my story that's way beyond what I share on podcasts. Like some of like, you know, deeply shameful stuff or what right. not deeply shameful to me anymore, but deep, something that may be causing him a tremendous amount of shame. Right. And when I'm able to talk about that, so now I'm in a different category. It's, I'm not judging him. I'm, Does I'm, it I'm ever in the get same to place he was. Let me ask you one final question. Does it ever get to a point where you're drained by all of this? Like that you don't want to take another person's call that you don't want to talk about this, that you're like, I'm just, I'm tired of talking about this. Does it, does it have that effect ever? It's, it's not like, not, not from that, meaning I can't physically because of time maybe, or it's just, right. there's more, but not, no. I mean, when you talk about what's the 12th step, right? Having had a spiritual right. awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. That right. is like the energy has got to flow through you. And as an addict, you kind of left with two choices. And I speak about this a lot with Chase. That is, if, if you're going to let it stagnate and accumulate inside you, uh, it's going to corrode your inside. So it kind of has to be, has to it be, has moving. To be constantly if, moving. Yeah. What they say in, um, in recovery, they say, we keep what we have by giving it away. It's like, you, you got to be in that mode of like, you're, you're always in someone else's story. 
but not with a neediness, not with a codependency, not with a, not with a struggle. It's, I'm not addicted to the drama, but I'm comfortable there. You're comfortable. And there. I don't need that person's drama, but I certainly need people. <laughs> I don't need that person, but I certainly need to be of service. I need to be, to I need to be in that space of being helpful, being sharing, someone benefiting from, from my story of being able to get out of my own head. So that doesn't get tiring. No, it's energizing. Right. So it's quite the opposite, actually. So, you know, being needed to be of service to people is the energizing part. It's, it's, it's part, like they say, it's part of the recovery. It's the most important part, technically. Getting right. And you have stuff. boundaries. You have boundaries to function. Like I, th- I tell myself, like, I'm not going to have more than two sponsees at a time because I have three young children. I have a job. I have, right. you know, charity commitments I get involved in, I have responsibilities. So I can't devote. I, you know, my, my sponsor is 15 sponsors. This is what he does. He's retired. He's 70. He's, this is People his life. Do that. Right. So he has that capacity, but even him, he has a boundary at some point. He knows that if not 18, 17, well, so whatever, he right. He has a number. Right. right. No, of course. Boundaries are a very important part of all this. Okay, but when well, you don't need it, when you don't need it, when you're not coming from that aspect, when you don't need that person. You're not addicted to the drama. You're not addicted to the struggle, but you can play in the struggle. Um, then it's, it's very powerful. I'll actually share one, mm-hmm. one thing is, you know, we spoke about how it kind of comes full circle on the Hasidus and everything else. Yeah. So something I learned recently, which to me is like exactly this codependency thing. So it was about why Yaakov was renamed to Yisrael. Okay. But then his name went back and forth, right? And mostly actually referred to as Yaakov. Yeah. Afterwards, we call it Avram Yisrael Yaakov. But then Israel is kind of important because the whole Jews are named Israel. So it's not this irrelevant name. Right. The name was introduced for the first time. It's a very important name, but it's not his name always, right? Like, what's up right. with that? Versus, right, Avraham says anyone who calls Avraham Avram is like committing some sort of sin. And we never right. see him ever referred to like that again. So the difference here, so Yaakov is a struggle, right? That's like when he was Yaakov, the house of Lavan, he's negotiating, he's in business. He's like the struggles of life right? He's, he's in the struggle. Also what the name came from, right? He's fooling Esav. He's wrestling with him. He's right. in that. And then Yisrael was the wrestling's over, right? He beat the angel. Some interpreters beating himself, but it was like, okay, match over. You have a little limp, but you're okay. You won the match, right? So at that point, Yisrael, Yisrael is outside of the struggle, right? That level of Yisrael is outside of the struggle. They say Yisrael is also the level of Shabbos. Yaakov is the level of the the six days of the week, the struggle. So it was once he was able to reach a state of, I don't need the struggle anymore, the level of Yisrael, then, okay, you're back to Yaakov. You're still in the struggle, but you're in it with a different energy. It's almost like someone who's, you know, a serial dater. They're dating and dating and dating. And you say, okay, let's take a pause from dating. It's like, well, how am I going to manage without dating? Well, you're going to have to. And then you get to a, this is my story a little bit. And you get to a point in time where you're like, okay, there's no one and I'm fine. I'm okay. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really need, I don't feel like I need to date anyone. Like I'm okay alone. And they'll tell us a therapist, a coach or the sponsor. So what's next? Well, now you're ready to date right now. You're ready for the struggle, right? Right. Now Cause you kind of addicted to yeah. it. That's, That's the same. I think with codependent, you're available to help once you don't, once you're not needed for the help, can you, can you hang right. out for a month and not do anything and put this completely in someone else's hands? You can do that. Okay, now you're ready. Now you're back in the in the level of Yaakov and the level of struggle where that's the purpose of this world to be in the struggle, but not because I'm addicted to it. Mm. 
that's that's fascinating also um i've also heard the the part where yaakov asks ace of Zmalach, the angel to bless him after he finishes wrestling because okay, now i'm not gonna let you go until you until you bless me it's like that also that that part of that that which we struggle with we we come to a level where it actually is part of our blessing it's part it's it's the recovery from it like right. that struggle is like as Shay said the question the solution is in the pain right it's in the addiction and i see that as connection uh, connected you know like when we ask that angel to bless us we're asking we're taking the blessings from our struggle and moving forward from it in a healthy way yeah one of the most powerful concepts that Shay shared on that podcast is that I never heard it said like this. So we say you're not al allowed to intentionally sin, right? To say, I'm going to sin to do tshuva. Right. But the way he worded it was almost like, even though there's going to be real benefits to that. Like there is something about going into the struggle and wrestling with that. And yeah. then eventually coming out the other side of it that will get you into a much deeper place. You're just not allowed to intentionally do it. So once someone has been there already, then what they can do with that is much more powerful. If you haven't been there, then you have no permission to go and you can't elevate yourself in that way. Right. But the way I heard him say it was actually going there gives an opportunity to be elevated to a much higher state than not going there. It's just, you're not going, you're not allowed to do that premeditated. If you've already right. gone there, then- Then okay. get the blessing. And Note now the here's blessings. the blessing. Right. Right. But don't so intentionally no, go there. Somebody can't intentionally become an addict and say, I really want to go through that process and become this person that's on a higher level than regular people. Like, it's like about chuva, but like, you don't go in it to get the rewards. You kind of have to go through it and then, ah, okay, that's, that's the other side of it. Fascinating. I really appreciate your time and giving us all this time. So thank you so much, Ellie. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity.